If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Theodore Roosevelt. He'll be answering our call in July of 1915 at the age of 54. During his short life of 60 years, T.R. accomplished more than most could do in a dozen lifetimes. When tragedy struck the Roosevelt household, it would affect him deeply, like anyone. Yet somehow he would rise from each challenge by doubling his previous efforts. He was the first American to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, the first president to ride in a submarine, in an airplane, an automobile. He was the first president to travel overseas, and the list goes on. His timing and ingenuity to build the Panama Canal when other countries had failed showed how TR played the short game and the long game simultaneously. When he worked, his pace was relentless. When he fought, he fought to the death without fear, regardless of if it was in war or fighting monopolies for the rights of people or for the protection of college athletes. Leisure time for TR was spent barely surviving an expedition to the Amazon jungle and hunting big game in Africa. His list of accomplishments are never-ending, and his courage to do what is right and what must be done despite extraordinary risks is why he is rated in the top five presidents and finds his face next to Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln on Mount Rushmore. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and to all of those in the arena, I give you the trust buster, the hero of San Juan Hill, the bull moose himself, Theodore Roosevelt. Hello, is that you, President Roosevelt? Well, yes, it is. Thank you for your call here at the Toll. Oyster well, Bay, of course, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Sir, it is a pleasure to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were walking five feet from one another on a buffalo hunt. And it also allows oh. me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? Well, I have to admit, when my aides first came to me about this type of call, I could not get my mind off of the typical telephone that was well, like the one that was installed here on Oyster Bay just recently. But on the other hand, I have always kind of kept an eye on the old inventions and new products that come out. And I have to admit that Mr. Addison's moving picture paraphernalia has proven quite impressive. And I've, quite honestly, I've been able to use that machine in a way that uh, brings the president and the presidency to American people in a way that hasn't been done before. So I'm always very interested in these new ideas, even though it may take me a while to come around. Well, I'll tell you what, and as far as we understand, your history as president and just your life is well documented, and it definitely appears that you were not hesitant to take on new technologies or new ways of learning things. And 
it seemed like you were ahead of everybody else, to be quite honest with you. Well, thank you for that. I think I've always been a leader. If I've had one trait that uh, I have been able to use and use well is that of leadership. I do not believe that I'm necessarily oh, smarter than the average man, nor do I have any attributes better than the average man, except I do have a knack for leadership. And if leadership is where a person wants to go, then they've got to be ready to not necessarily embrace, but be ready to learn what is new out there, what is coming along that might change our way of thinking, or it might change our way of living, or might enhance the way we live. I know that I enjoy the outdoors very much, but I'm not one to shy away from anything that improves our enjoyment of that, such as the national park system that's now coming into being. I'm not surprised that you feel this way, that you have been a leader. I think that a lot of people that are leaders would not talk about it as openly because it doesn't sound humble. But the truth is the truth, and if there is ever a leader that has ever walked the earth, it is you. And I guess I'm wondering where that came from. Is, did that come from your dad? He sounds like he was an extraordinary man. With the risk of perhaps uh, leading this into a, a history of the Roosevelt family, it, it was handed down, I believe. My father's side of, the, of our family, of course, the Roosevelts, you know, they... Very smart people, industrious people, they believe that uh, a person should do things, not sit around and wait for them to be done, but to get out and get action in some sort. But they were very old, low-key, and somewhat conservative about things. They, in a sense, gave me my sense for leadership and good government, whereas, well... The Bullocks, that's my mother's side of the family, they were, well, kind of wanderers, adventurers. They never seemed to be able to sit, settle down any particular place, and they were always looking at what was over on the other side of the hill. The grass always seemed to be greener in some way. I'm, I like to think of the Bullocks as being adventuresome, somewhat piratical in the things to do. It was my grandmother Bullock and my Aunt Anna that filled us with stories that, oh, made these dreams try to become a reality where they could. So I believe that my sense of leadership and government was inculcated by my grandmother, Margaret Barnhill Roosevelt, and I believe from Martha Stewart Bullock, which is my mother's mother, that there came this sense that life is this wonderful adventure to be lived to its fullest. And sometimes you have to take a leadership role. You don't wait for things to happen. By golly, you do them, and you do them as well as you can. You know, sometimes they don't work out, but that's a part of the adventure of life. This makes a lot of sense. I didn't feel like we were going to get to the core of, of what I see as your being like this early, but you grew up with a family with means, a father who's a doer, and the other side of your family, they're the people that are wanderers, the creatives. 
And it seems like you just absorbed all of that because I, as I learned about you, I mean, one day you're like, hey, you know what we need? We need the Panama Canal. So let's just dig through another country. Oh, and by the way, I want to go to Africa and hunt lion and bear or whatever. And it's just back and forth throughout your whole life of doing and experience and wandering and then doing again and so forth. I mean, is that your being? Well, you, I guess since you put it the way, that, that's pretty good. I have to admit, I guess if some biographer wanted to start out with some thesis on the life of Theodore Roosevelt Jr., that that would be, that would be a pretty good way to describe it. Now that I think about it all together, my father was the last of five brothers here in New York City on Manhattan Island. And he, well, I won't say he had this wonderlust, but of all the Roosevelt's at that time, my father, Theodore, who was a great man, I tell you, well, he had this desire to see more of the world. And so when it was that, oh, I think it was about, I, I think it was in the early 1850s, if my memory serves me correct, he decided he wanted to go and see parts of America that had never been seen before. And I, I know the family, for the most part, thought it was rather odd that he did for up until that time, as far as my family history remembers, I think we had an uncle that once took a uh, riverboat uh, ride down the Ohio for a ways, and they all thought that he was rather uh, eccentric for wanting to do so. You know, the Roosevelt's are doing quite well on Manhattan, as they say. Why would we ever want to get away from that? And, and we were doing... Uh, good. My grandfather started a bank, which was very good, and one of the few banks that could meet its financial obligations head-on with success. And, well, you have to remember this, that the Roosevelt's were very good at two things. The Roosevelt's knew how to make money, which they did, and they knew how to make more Roosevelt's, which they did. And so it was just sort of in the family nature to do these things and lead us children of the Roosevelt brothers in the direction that we all took. This is something I've wondered my whole life, to be quite honest with you. One of my favorite quotes of yours is, do what you can with what you have where you are. And I think that is so powerful. And yet, Somebody that would be a naysayer or a person that might be more cynical might look at somebody like you saying that and say, yeah, well, it's really easy to do what you can with what you have where you are when your family is great at making Roosevelt's and, of course, making piles of money because you came into life with a lot of advantages. And this, these interesting – two interesting sides of your family that you could build on. What would you say to somebody that might say, well, yeah, it's really easy to do what you can with what you are when you have tons of cash and you don't necessarily have to go out and get a job and you can just go to Harvard? I mean, what would you say to that person that said you had all the advantages? The advantage, especially in this country, is not what you're born with. There is an advantage to having parents that care, having a family that knows what the meaning of a family is and works together in many ins different instances. That's the only real advantage you have. I, I know lots of people who have money and they don't do very well. They might live good because they have money, but 
They haven't done anything with it. They haven't made anything with it. They haven't left a legacy in any sense of the word. Being born in New York City, the son, the oldest son of Theodore Roosevelt didn't stop me from suffering from asthma for years and years. And I do mean suffering. My father didn't know what to do. Of course, no one knew back then that we the doctors and, and such medicines as we have were primitive medicine of the time. My father thought that one treatment for his son's asthma was drinking hot coffee. Somehow, drinking hot black coffee while undergoing an asthma attack. Of course, that was ridiculous. And another time, he would put me in a carriage, uh, what they call a two-horse phaeton in the time, and we would race through the streets of New York 15, 16 mile an hour as he tried to force uh, the cold night air into the lungs of of his son. Is that right? Oh, yes, yes. I The asthma would just come on, and there was something I suffered with, well, until, oh, at some point when I was at Harvard, and I suffered less as, as the years went on. But my mother, I think it was my mother now that I think about it, she had heard, a lady friend had told her that smoking a cigar, the victim of asthma, the person undergoing the attack, by smoking a cigar, inhaling of the smoke and such would expand the lungs and let the person breathe either. Can you imagine that in this day and age? I mean, here we are in 1915, and it was only a few years ago we looked back and we were undergoing such show medicine man sort of remedies for things. My condition with the asthma wasn't affected at all by whether my parents had money or did not have money. My parents' status didn't keep me from having weak eyesight all my life. So you had asthma and poor eyesight? Oh, yes. When I was a boy, my father bought me my first gun, which is like a flowbutt, small caliber rifle. I can remember I went out on Long Island with some friends, and they'd raise their rifles and fire at a flock of birds, and I couldn't even see the birds. I mean, my eyesight was so bad. My daughter Alice said, well, Father, your eyesight was so bad that I'm sure when you raised your rifle at anything, all your friends immediately uh, fell to the ground to avoid any misfire as such. And I have to admit that I very rarely shot anything successfully back then. Especially birds was what we hunted, of course. And, you know, with the the eyesight, it's something that I've always lived. Now, fortunately, we have folks who gave us a certain, oh, relief by the the types of glasses at that time, the spectacles that they could put to us. But again, the situation with my family was such that it did not, mean that I had an easy life or a good life. I have always had a good memory. That was a good thing. I I was, we were homeschooled. All, all four of us children were homeschooled. So Elliot and I were given a, oh, a good test, good lessons in getting ready to uh, enter Harvard amongst other things. So there were some certain advantages, but if you are not prepared to do the work, those advantages won't mean a great deal. 
And just doing the work doesn't necessarily mean you will succeed. I think the greatness of our country is you have the chance to succeed. You also have the chance to fail. So that means the common, ordinary, day, everyday man has to put in the sweat, the labor, the effort, and not everybody knows everything. And I think that's, quite honestly, I think that's one of the things that uh, a community is good to have and also may suffer from, having, let's say, leadership that is not willing to put in the time and the effort to make that community improve. I didn't mean to get onto the soapbox there, so. No, not at all. And if we're being honest, you've spent some time on a soapbox, but the words that usually come out of your mouth are pretty good. That's why people listen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, talking has been one of my strong points. I'm a politician at heart, uh, but I think I'm a good politician. There's no false modesty. I believe what I say. I believe that there are good people that can do good things, and I want to be one of them, quite honestly. That's amazing. So as you've been talking and I, I, waiting for every word, I'm also thinking about exactly word for word what you might say to the person who would address you, as I was saying. You're born with all these advantages, and you're telling us, yeah, do what you can with what you have, but you have all these advantages. And I think what you would say to them is, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I was born with some advantages. However, along with those advantages came two tiny little problems that I overcame. And here's what they were. I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe. Except for that, everything was great. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that's uh, an astute observation. Well, I must remember that the next <laughs> time I'm talking to a journalist. How old were you when you had asthma? Well, actually, I was oh. I was probably somewhere around four or five years old when the asthma kind of took root. And it wasn't until I was about 20 or so when I finally overcame it. This is true and an exact. When I was, oh, about 12 or 13, my father took me aside and he said, Theodore, you have the mind, but you don't have the body. You must make the body as strong as your mind. And he said it in such a way, he had me on every word that he said, I could not help but agree. And finally, it, I, I said, I will, Father, I, I will make my body, and I meant it. And from that day on, I worked diligently in trying to build up my body. I did pull-ups and chin-ups and push-ups, and I worked at with the medicine ball and going to the local gym there just off of 20th Street where we were living at the time. It was work and it was sweat and there are no easy methods to accomplish anything and there shouldn't be. No one should want an easy road. They want a road that demands something of themselves. And when they're done, they can probably look at what they've done and be grateful for the lessons that they have learned and how they overcome whatever the problem may be. But it was my father who got me going to the degree where, well, you know, I was on the Harvard boxing team for a while. I loved rowing, although I wasn't really an expert at it, just the sheer enjoyment of being your own method of propulsion 
was so enjoyable to me. And so exertion of the body, of the will, always was strong with me. And I think that was far more important than whether I was born one of the children of the privileged, which some people would say, or one of the children that had the opportunity to grow and learn and lead also. Yeah. I want to ask you about your boxing. And I got to get this this visual out of my head that you've given me because you, you're talking about this asthma and a lot of people, this would just sideline them and they wouldn't do much after that. Oh. And yet you've got this terrible asthma and I, I picture your father, this guy who's a doer. And so you're a young kid with asthma in a carriage going down the road at 15 miles an hour. Now, again, you're yeah. five years old, smoking a cigar and drinking a hot cup of coffee going 15 miles an hour to cure your asthma. And I can't get that picture out of my head. <laughs> well, yes. One would seldom see the parlor in a typical Midwestern city and then go, enter that parlor to find that there's a young 10 or 11-year-old child sitting there wrapped in a blanket with a cup of steaming hot coffee in one hand and a lit stogie in the other. <laughs> That's amazing. So let's talk about boxing. So I understand that boxing was a, played a, a large role in your life and something that you enjoyed, but I'd like to hear kind of how that started at Harvard, but also were you boxing in the White House? I heard that there was boxing and oh. that you were even wrestling aides in the White House sometime. I mean, did that happen? Uh, I, well, of course. I mean, you know, you just you have this energy that you need to expand in some way, but you do it in a good way, in a fair way. Uh, I took boxing, again, and one of the reasons was because of the asthma to help control that and build up my body. And I did enjoy the physical, personal aspect of boxing. I've always liked sport, but for some reason, team sport, such as baseball, or, or even the collegiate style of football never appealed to me as much as an individual sport, say tennis or boxing or hunting, for example. But I always loved sport. Uh, I liked getting into the ring with an opponent, testing my limits against the other fellows. And generally I did well, but I also lost and I knew how to lose. Quite honestly, I felt it was important to be a a sport about such things. Take your losses when they're given to you in a manly style and do not be afraid to fight your opponent to the limit, but don't foul, don't flinch, don't cheat in a manner. If you win, you deserve the win. You've done it because you've done it in a good manly way. So I've always, I've always been a fan of boxing and yes, when I was president, especially in the basement of the White House, we would go down and put on some gloves. I've boxed with several different people, uh, Colonel Leonard Wood, or actually he was general by the time I was in the White House, but of course he led the Rough Riders in Cuba as a colonel, and he was a good friend and would come in and we would box down in the basement. There would often be an aide that would box with me if I asked or if I needed the exercise. Edith, Mrs. Roosevelt, she had a, a nephew on her mother's side of the family 
which I guess will also make me a nephew of mine. And he was in the service, and he would visit at the White House once or, or twice, and he would go down in the uh, basement with me and box. He's a, a young man, you know. I, I was over 40 years old when I was president, and this young man would box with me. He gave me a good, solid hit right to the side of the head, and it was a good hit, a fair hit. And it uh, made my bell ring quite a bit. I was somewhat deaf in the, my left ear after that. But it was a good sport. We also would go down into the basement oftentimes with the Japanese ambassador, and we would do some what they called jujitsu in the basement. And he was a bit smaller than me, but he never let that bother him, and he threw me around the Matt several times. Of course, he he would have to in turn do a little boxing with me, and I can remember while he could throw me around the mat pretty good, I gave him a punch or two to for him to remember me by while boxing. So being present is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing, and you're busy all the time, but sometimes you just have to leave the White House and get out and get some good exercise, whatever that may be at the time. I wonder if in politics, it's such a blood sport in its own way. I wonder if maybe having a boxing ring in the White House might be a decent way to settle some of those disputes. Well, I, I tell you, there have been a number of gentlemen in Washington, D.C. I wish that I could take by the collar and get a hold of them and have them put some gloves on, and then let me really go at them. I've, I've had many people say, Mr. Roosevelt, you don't sound like you're real thrilled about the actions of some senator or congressman that you have to deal with. Don't you have much regard for these gentlemen? And I should say I have regard for some of these gentlemen. But by and large, the senators in Washington, D.C., are, well, they're hard to really like or respect. There are times in the Senate at roll call when they don't know whether to respond to the uh, question. When their name is called, they don't know whether to say guilty or present. The, the senators themselves, and there are a few good ones. Senator Albert Breveridge of Indiana is an excellent senator. And I hope that the good people of the Hoosier State would elect him several terms. Of course, there's Senator Lodge from Massachusetts, who's one of my best friends and just a, an excellent, a great American by and large. But after those first two or three, the quality of the Senate leads something to be desired. It's tough to get the right people into those places because I think when... And then it's tough to get them out of the places... Uh, I, Mr. Washington and some of his contemporaries who felt that a man who stood for office was doing so for the good of the country or, or the good of his, of his constituents. And yet it often seems like several of them think that once they get elected that they should be in there for the good of themselves for as long as they need to be. Now that's a, that's kind of, uh, hard thing to say, but I believe that several of the senators that I'm thinking of uh, could not uh, disagree with what I have to say.
Yeah, there's so much power at stake once they get in there. And I think the average person feels that power and they think, I'm never leaving this spot. Yeah, well, that's why I have been for the direct election of senators by the people, not through the legislature of the state governments, because it's so easy for them to stay in the office if they go that route. You had mentioned a second ago, and this is certainly a big moment in your life, you had mentioned the the Rough Riders and Cuba. Ah, yes. The legend of this in our time is just, it's so big, it's hard to even imagine that any of it is true. But it appears to me that here you are in the McKinley administration. I think you're vice president or yes. secretary of the Navy. Yes, I was assistant secretary of the Navy in the McKinley administration when war was declared. And then you're you're basically you're nearly forty years old. You got a wife. Uh, yes. You got five yes. children and one on the way because you're taking yes. the job of making Roosevelt seriously. And then you decide that you're going to put on the uniform and you're going to lead the Rough Riders in Cuba. You're going to be on the front lines, running into a hail of bullets. Like what was the thinking there? Well, I think it's rather simple. Yet I can understand those because there were many people, especially my friends, who said. What are you doing? Using the same criteria that you just said, they said, you should stay in Washington. You're needed there. All my life, I have preached a, a, a certain way. And I felt that if you're going to preach a certain way, whatever that may be, then you should be willing to be a part of it or to act in that manner. So I had been preaching that war with Spain over Cuba would be inevitable. It's going to happen sooner or later. And I believed this for many years, and I felt that we needed to be prepared for whenever that came through. Well, that's one thing for us to preach, that we need to be prepared. It's also one thing for me to say to a young man or an older man like myself, you go over there and you fight this battle for us. Well, what type of man would I be if I told someone else to go along and that I'll stay back or behind from where the danger was? I wouldn't be, well, much good to myself, or my family, or my country, or oh my God, if when the time came for action that I wanted to hang back, that I was afraid to actually take part in the danger. Uh, I felt that no man worth his steel should keep out of harm's way, especially after they had preached to bring that harm to a head. I told Edith, Mrs. Roosevelt, about it, and she had completely understood. She knew that I had to go, and she was not in the best of health at the time, and so I would be leaving her having a child that was to be born yet, and she was not in the best of health. I had four children who I loved dearly, but what type of man would I be if I was afraid to go and do that which I asked others to do? I could have stayed on as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. I love being Secretary of the Navy. I love the Navy, but the action would not have been in the Navy Department, uh, I knew I would not be a good naval officer. They could have, I could have been appointed a naval officer. As much as I love the Navy, I knew 
my strong point would not have been aboard ships. I knew that my strong point was with a cavalry unit. And Major Leonard Wood, at the time, he, he agreed with my thinking. I knew that he was the man to head the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry. Mr. McKinley and, the, and his administration agreed that we should form. So he was appointed colonel. I was appointed lieutenant colonel. I thought I'd be a good officer. I, I realized that the, the men needed uh, someone of a military nature who, who really knew the military well, the Army well, to, to lead the group. And, and, of course, he agreed to when we, we had uh, all the Rough Riders. And, and, by the way, the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry had room for, at first, only 800 men, and later it was expanded to 1,200. We had 25,000 men volunteer to, to join that regiment when they found out that we were forming it. It says a lot of the American man, and it says a lot of the type of men that we were looking for to be uh, volunteer soldiers for. They, no one at the time knew exactly how long it would last or where it would take us, but they were all willing to go at the time. And so we've, we had organized our camp in San Antonio and obviously wound up in Cuba on July 1st, 1898, where our charge was made. As fine a group of men as I've, I've ever been around. It's incredibly proud to lead such Americans. Our cavalry, our unit came from all over for all types of men. It was one, and I'm afraid I, I get talking. I might even go beyond any of the time limits you might have before you have to catch a train with all this, if, if that's possible. But And I'd be glad to answer any questions that you have about the Rough Riders, but I had to go. I just had to be involved in the fray that was to come. I understand. I mean, again, as I've said, so much has been written about your life. Anybody would understand you saying that completely because as yes. the very first thing you said when we started talking is you said, I'm a leader, and a leader leads, period, end of story. Like you're the definition that's, of That's great. I've told that many times to people that American officers, whether they be volunteers or regular army, American officers – lead and they lead from the front. They don't tell their men to go and I will be along later. They say, follow me. That's the way I've always, that's the way I've always believed. American soldiers, officers lead always and they do not send somebody to do the job that they know that they should do themselves or that they can do themselves. So, yeah. and I've felt that way with the Rough Riders. So, so here you are, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and you go to the president and you say, hey, we're going to war, and clearly you need me here as the Secretary of the Navy, but I've got to get on a horse and charge San Juan Hill, and so i got to go. What does the president say? Well, he didn't want me to go, and for many reasons. Mr. McKinley is one, one of our great presidents. I always liked Mr. McKinley. I didn't always agree with him. But I, I thought he was really one of the best presidents we ever had. He's definitely a, a politician in, in some ways. And he did not 
nor did most of the people in the administration really want me to leave the, the office as assistant secretary. On the other hand, they knew that, how can I put this point? They, they probably felt that I was a pain in the neck in so many ways <laughs> that it would be good for me to get out of Washington and to get out of their hair. So if it took just a line Roosevelt to create one volunteer cavalry regiments, and by the way, there were three yeah, volunteer cavalry regiments altogether. Were they all called but, Rough Riders? Well, not not Roosevelt's Rough Riders. I think the name became a general name to the second and third volunteer United States Cavalry, and I think people confuse that. But really, the only the first United States Volunteer Cavalry, which was mainly New Mexicans, Arizonans, Oklahoma Territory, and Indian Territory men, although they were from all over the United States, they were mainly made up of those four areas. And that was the first United States Volunteer Cavalry. But they were all, as far as I could tell, they were all excellent men. And they would have made good material if the uh, war had lasted longer and they needed the cavalry to go. We, our army was in a disorganized disarray during all that time. And quite honestly, I think the Spanish-American War kind of helped bring out all those problems that the Army had and helped them overcome and create a better Army than we had, especially by the time I became president. So tell me about this San Juan Hill. I actually know very little about this. So if I've got this right now, you've got your group of Rough Riders, and these are <laughs> men ready to fight and charge into the battle. And you guys are on horseback. And now it is time to take San Juan Hill. And I, I, my understanding is you did not sit back and say, yeah, go for it. Let me know how it goes. Tell me what this looked like. What happened? Well, I, let me correct you on one thing. We were not on horseback. I, Theodore Roosevelt, I was on horseback because the Army, being as disorganized as I said it was, they only had room for eight of the 12 troops or companies of men, and they had no room at all on the ships for the horses, except for the horse of Colonel Wood and myself. So, quite honestly, we were called the cavalry, the first United States Volunteer Cavalry, but we were actually infantry, as were the other five regiments of the cavalry brigade. By July 1st, the morning of July 1st, we had wound our way up from Sidonay, the Bay Area, to, oh, just outside of, of Santiago, the... Spanish were in position on the last couple of ridges that guarded the city, and the city was our target of the whole army, and that we were trying to figure out how to capture the city, because once we captured the city, we would have the Spanish fleet totally at our mercy, and I don't think the Spanish would have much chance of holding out in the rest of Cuba at the time. Nevertheless, we were taken under fire. The Spanish had good rifles, and they were good riflemen, and they were 
firing back, shelling us. We led the Rough Riders, along with other regiments of the Cavalry Brigade, to the San Juan River, which was at that time a dry riverbed because it was already uh, over 100 degrees in heat by the morning of that famous battle. That sounds awful. We, I think it was, really, quite honestly. The men were lying down for the most part, but they were, every once in a while, we were taking some casualties. I, myself, was wounded very slightly on my right wrist when a shell fragment hit it, but it, it wasn't enough to worry about. Uh, my aide that was standing alongside my horse was killed by a Spanish bullet that uh, went right through him, and several Rough Riders, including Captain Bucky O'Neill of the uh, True Bay, they were shot and killed by Spanish soldiers. Now, I had been watching this, seeing this, and being a Roosevelt, I guess I was somewhat frustrated that we were kept from the battle. The idea was that Colonel Lawton, way over on the right with the infantry, the 5th Infantry, they would attack a fort called El Caney. They would capture the fort, and then they would roll up the line of San Juan Ridge where the Spanish against us were stationed, and they would win the battle. We were just there to keep the Spanish busy and their attention to us. Well, as luck would have it, Lawton, who is a wonderful soldier, he and General Kent, they just could not get El Caney captured. Then we waited, and our men still took casualties, and I was getting frustrated and several times sent back for orders. I didn't like the idea of us laying down there, getting shot at, and not being able to do anything about it. And finally, I sent off to two of the regiments close to me and said, if the Rough Riders go forward on our own, will your regiment support us? And they, being regular officers, said, no, we haven't had the orders. We're not going to do it. Of course, I was a volunteer officer, and I knew that I wasn't going to be in the Army for long anyway once the war was over with. So I was determined that we're going up that hill. We're not going to sit here and get taken anymore. I'm going to lead the Rough Riders up the hill. And by that time, I actually was Colonel of the Rough Riders because Colonel Wood had been promoted the day before because of an opening in the officer's ranks. So he was no longer directly leading the, the Rough Riders. It was me. So as Roosevelt luck would have it, some of the senior officers said, send the cavalry up. Maybe that'll help loosen the, the battle that's being fought way over on the right. And so just as I was about to go ahead and have the uh, Rough Riders go forward, orders came. And of course, now I didn't have to worry about it, but I would not have worried about it, quite honestly. And so I said, up men and follow me. And I was on little Texas, the horse, and our goal was to capture a, a blockhouse on, on San Juan Hill. There were obstacles to run through, amongst other things, but the men were ready and eager to go, and all they had to do was see the their colonel, myself, and they knew I was going forward, and they were ready to go forward, and with a rush, the uh, Rough Riders 
went out of their cover along the San Juan River and other places, and it was amazing. It was great. No soldier we ever saw it will ever forget it. The men started going up behind the flags, and and they, they were going up Indian style, and they'd fire their guns, and then they would stop and load for a second, and then they would rush forward, and nothing seemed to be able to stop them, and, and the fire was rather heavy. The Spanish knew what they were doing. As a matter of fact, I believe that day the Rough Riders took more killed and wounded than any other regiment during the Spanish-American War, but we kept going. At some point, we got up oh, the hill that we were headed up, and other units were joining. We'd looked around, and, and other cavalry regiments had joined with us and were going up the 9th uh, and 10th Cavalry, the Buffalo Soldiers. The 3rd Cavalry was there, I'm sure the 1st and and six were there. They're going up the hill with us, and we came to this obstacle, some wire and such. I couldn't take little Texas up the hill, so I dismounted and sent that lucky horse back, and I do mean lucky. The, the horse went up the hill and went all the way back and didn't get a scratch, and it, there were men falling all around them. We got to this one hill, and we were, uh, Spaniards shot at me, and I shot at him, and I think there was another one that I shot at the time. It was personal combat by that time, but we quickly pushed the Spanish off the hill. We were standing around congratulating ourselves when we started to take bullets again, and we looked over again, and there was another ridge. We had gone up the wrong hill. I mean, we... <laughs> We didn't know it at the time. Uh, there was a series of hills, and we hadn't gone up San Juan Hill. We went up a, a place called Kettle Hill. We had been standing around. We were congratulating ourselves, and all of a sudden, we find, by golly, we, we did well, but this wasn't what we needed to do. And quickly, I came to a decision. Uh, we're not going back. We'd lost too many good rough riders going up to the hill to that point, I said, the only good thing to do now is to attack, to continue. I yelled for the men to follow me, and off we went to San Juan Hill on the next ridge. And we knocked them off, and they, they didn't stay very long, but and it didn't take long to look around and realize that all of a sudden we Americans were on the ridge that we needed to be. We were our flags were flying. I had the men dig in to prevent any further counterattacks coming. As far as I could see, uh, along San Juan Hill, uh, there were brave American lads that had just achieved something wonderful. And quite honestly, I felt pretty good because at that point, as far as I knew, I was in charge of all the American soldiers along San Juan Hill. And, it, you know, it felt good. I honestly felt that if I had taken a bullet and my life had ended there, I would have left my family something to be proud of, something that they could say their father had achieved this for his country. It's incredible because who looks at war this way and finds the good and the benefits and sees the good in something that so many other people find themselves in a war campaign and it just breaks them for the rest of their life? Which raises the question that I have about war with you, because historians have studied your life 
and how it seems like you were always preparing for war, maybe even to a point where you were looking forward to it. You're building the Navy. As soon as there's an opportunity for you to fight, you're like, I drop everything and get on the ground and, and start fighting. Is war something that well, you do look forward to? I would not say that, but what you say has a lot of truth in it. I, I have always felt that the two greatest men who ever led our nation were Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And one of the things about George Washington, which is so good even to this day, so many decades after he lived, one of his sayings was, to have peace, you should be prepared for war. I believe that fully. That's one of the reasons why I've always wanted to build up the Navy. In this day and age, as it has always been, nations admire power, understand power. And in this day and age, power is battleships. A nation that doesn't have a strong Navy is weak in the eyes of its competitor nations. And it is also an apple to be dangling in, in front of someone just ripe for the picking. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure of while I was president, that we were prepared and nothing has gotten me riled up of late as the fact that the Wilson administration is so unprepared for what is obviously coming our way. I'm not a war lover, although I've been called that, but I have no problems with being prepared for it. I have no problems when it is demanded of a nation to, to prove itself, to uh, show that it has the strength and the willpower to defend itself and to do those things which others would use to their advantage. I do not like it when a man says, you can insult my wife because that won't do anything to her. I don't want you her, but I don't want you to insult her either. I, I don't have a, much use for a man who won't defend his wife or defend his children because to do so might create some aggression or violence on somebody. I, I do not believe that a nation that does not stand for something that allows itself to be bloodied and beaten, I think that nation has really a worthy place in the world. I'm not talking about being a bully. I'm talking about being able to defend yourself and to do what's right for yourself, your family, and, and your God. And maybe others look at it differently, and I'm sure they do. I think what you're saying makes sense. You're not looking for war, but at the same time, you're being a realist that people don't get along all the time. And sometimes wars have to be either fought or threatened, and that's just the way it is. It's, it's a very realistic approach. That's probably the... The best way to look at it all together, you, you say, I don't want to do this, or I don't necessarily like to do this, but I'm not afraid to stand up to a bully, whether it be a nation or a politician or some tough down at the local pool hall. Uh, there are times when a person, as well as a nation, has to say enough. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's switch directions for a minute here. I think you've made this point very clear. Let's move forward a little bit, and by the way, what is the date in your time? July 1915. Okay, so it's 1915, 
And a couple of years ago, th- what made me think about this is you were talking about how you took a little shrapnel when you were in, in Cuba. And there was another time where you took some shrapnel oh. that was the whole yeah. musket ball or the whole bullet. And that was in 1912 when you took a bullet yeah. to the chest, didn't you? Well, that was back in 1912. We, we were still running a three-way race for the presidency, Mr. Taft was representing the Republican Party, and Mr. Wilson was representing the Democrats, and of course I was with the Bull Moose Party at that time. And let's see, we were drawing to a close of the campaign. We were the Roosevelt people, and were in Milwaukee. There had been a great turnout for, they're expecting about 9,000 people at the city civic auditorium there and I was at the hotel and I had just gotten into the open air car that was to take us, I and my party, to the where the meeting was where I was to give one of our the major speech. And I had my coat on, I had the hat in hand, and my coat was open. I got in the car and there was a large crowd around, very friendly toward Roosevelt, and I decided I would stand for a moment and wave to the crowd, and so I took off my fedora, and I held it in my right hand, and I was looking and twisting and acknowledging the crowd, and a fellow named John Schrank, who was quite crazy at the time, came up, and he looked like he was reaching up to shake my hand, but he actually had a revolver in his hand. And so when I reached down to shake the hand, he fired a bullet and the bullet went through my, my frock coat and the lapel. It hit the pocket where my speech was folded that I was going to give. And then it hit my glasses case and it ricocheted then the direction it was taking, and it stopped, we found out, a quarter inch from my heart. I fell back while several people grabbed Shrank. I was stunned a little bit, and but I was aware enough, and my experiences had told me that if a man spits up blood, then it's a serious wound, and, and, and likely a fatal wound. But if he doesn't spit up blood, then the wound is not as serious, although it wasn't. It, obviously, it needed to be taken seriously, but it wasn't uh, fatal to me at the time. And this is what I had thought from my experience. Uh, I asked the people that by now had shrank together. I had them bring him over, and I really do not know what, if anything, I was to say to the fellow. I just stared very hard at him and then said, take him away. And they did so. And uh, a couple of people said, where's the hospital? I said, no, we're not going to the hospital. We're going to the hall where the meeting's at. I said, there's some thousands of people waiting to hear me speak. And by golly, I'm not going to let them down over a little bullet or something like that. I can't remember the exact words that I might have used, but I had them go on to the hall. And in the meantime, Mrs. Roosevelt back in Oyster Bay was called and told about it. We got to the hall 
and we were a little late, obviously, not a whole lot. I entered the hall. It was a big platform, a kind of a stage, about oh, three feet off the ground. And when I entered, the crowd just broke into great emotion and, and cheering and made, made a person feel very good and humble about it. Just to be clear, as all this is happening right now, you have a bullet in your chest. Yes. Okay. That is, well, the people in charge of the hall were told about it. A couple of dozen of men were put around the bottom of the, the edge of the platform on the floor, and their job was to catch me should I faint and, and fall. The crowd cheered. I held up my hand, and we finally got them quiet after several minutes. And I, now, you have to remember that I... I'm a Roosevelt, I'm a politician, and I like good publicity. I think that was one of my strengths as a president. I knew how to deal with the press. But nevertheless, uh, at this time, I'm not sure I was thinking this at the time, but I held up my hands and I told the people, thank you very much for coming out. I don't know if you know this, but an assassin has just tried to shoot me back at the hotel and people gasp and said surprise and and oh no and all those sorts of things and I and then in the dramatic way I said and the proof of the assassin's bullet is here and with that I dramatically opened up the right side of my coat and there was the blood-stained shirt and vest and I still knew a good enough story when I saw one and people were all oh, they were oh to the hospital all this stuff and I said no 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 I said you folks have been here a long time I have a speech prepared, and as long as I'm able, I'm going to give that speech to you. And so went on and said, now, I'm a little tired and winded, and it's not easy speaking at a loud voice anymore. If you'll try and be quiet for a while, I will give as much of the speech as I can to you before we go to the hospital. And then with that, I spoke for an hour and a half and gave the full speech. It was one of the best moments I probably have had my whole life. So they listened and cheered, and then off to the hospital we went, where we met Mrs. Roosevelt, who took over from there for things. It seems like you have a keen understanding, while something terrible is happening, that these really hard, difficult moments often end up being the best experiences of your life. It's just in the moment, it feels awful. I do think that you're right. In in many respects, I've never lost my head that I can recall. I've been sad, and I've been happy, and I've been excited. But I think I always had this ability to understand where I was at and what it meant at the time. And it didn't matter whether I was, oh, helping put together a cattle drive in the Dakotas or having to deal with a bully cowboy out in Mingusville, Montana, or just dealing with, with the children from time to time. The Roosevelt children are enough for any man to have to handle. And as president, uh, they made the time in the White House enjoyable, agreeable, and always waiting for the next surprise to come along. I want to come back to that in just a minute. I would love to hear about the Roosevelt children especially, but <laughs> you've had these challenging things throughout your life, I, and I try to pick the thing that was maybe the most challenging, at least what it might be to me, and it, it wouldn't have been in Cuba. 
as a rough rider. And it, it, I don't mm -hmm. think that it maybe would have been as president, uh, something that happened then. It seems to me that the thing that would be the most difficult, and I don't know how anybody gets through this, didn't your, your wife and your mother die in the same day? Ah, uh, yes. You, you brought up a, a, a black day, indeed. I what thought. Can you tell me about that? I had thought that my father's death would have to be the hardest thing that I would ever have to deal with in my life, and it wasn't. I married Alice Lee, oh, when we were just out of Harvard and set up. We had been married about four years. This is we were living in, in 57th Street with my family, and I was been elected to the 23rd District of the New York Legislature. I was in the assembly at the time. Alice had just given birth to Alice. We named our first child Alice. I'd pass around cigars to the gentleman in the New York Legislature, and Alice was having a somewhat difficult time, although at the time, we did not know it. And again, medicine was even for the 1880s, it was still elementary in so many things. It's, it's hard to recall even now. Who is this guy? His mother and wife die on the same day, and yet he finds a way to persevere and accomplish everything that happens next? And how does he take a bullet in the chest and then speak for 90 minutes? When he talks about staring at his would-be assassin without saying a word, I thought, yeah, I'll pass on getting the evil eye from Theodore Roosevelt. In the next episode, you're going to hear about a bar fight when someone insulted TR for wearing glasses. Yeah, that's a bad idea. You'll hear about how he was the best-dressed cowboy in the Dakotas. And, of course, he'll talk about the bear that he didn't shoot that led to the creation of the teddy bear. I'm glad you're enjoying this podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Theodore Roosevelt.